Okay, if I could get your attention, we'd start this study of the parables of the minas. Does anybody have any minas, by the way? <laughs> Surely, if you're like me, you're going, what is a mina? A mina, you know, was an amount of money. One day's labor, it was typically one denarii. Uh, this little bitty coin, and uh, it'd probably be worth today, you know, in dollars, you know, you'd probably be talking about 50, 50 bucks to 100 bucks or something, be a, being a day's wage. Uh, and, okay, so a, a mina was 100 of those. So it was, a, you know, it was a substantial amount of money, but it, but it wasn't a, a huge amount of money. Uh, but it, it was uh, a stewardship, you know, in the parable that, that Jesus gives them. And a stewardship is just like the one that Lowell entrusted to his, to, to Joe, his most beloved possession he entrusted to old Joe. <laughs> All right. Our parable today is uh, in Luke 19. So if you have your Bible with you, turn to Luke chapter 19. And... It helps to have, know a little uh, historical background about the situation during Jesus' day in first century Israel. And, he, and here's the problem that kind of provoked the parable. All the Jewish writings that we have to, to look at from the first century, from before, even from the Dead Sea Scrolls that were written slightly before that that's been discovered. There's a lot of Jewish writing in those caves. All of it, including the internal evidence that's in your Bible, tells us that the Jewish expectations, everybody in Israel had a certain expectation for the Messiah. And their expectation was that he would be a political, military Messiah, leader, who would restore Israel to prominence. That's what they were looking for. And keep in mind, they'd been under Gentile domination, the domination of foreign nations, for over 600 years. First uh, Babylon, and then Persia, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans during Jesus' time. And so they're all saying, when is this ever going to end? When are we going to be God's people again and have our own nation and be a sovereign people and restore the kingdom like it was under uh, Solomon and David and, and those guys? And so that was their expectation that when the Messiah came, he would set up the kingdom immediately. And even Jesus' disciples believed this all during the ministry. You can, you can see it. And even after the resurrection, in the story of the road to Emmaus that happens after the resurrection, uh, his two disciples on the road in Luke 24, verse 21, they say to the stranger who was Jesus, but they thought it, they didn't recognize him, they said, we had expected him, Jesus, to set up the kingdom, and now we're shocked that he's gone. So even after the resurrection, they're still looking for the Messiah, the imminent uh, setting up of the kingdom. And uh, also, his own disciples after the resurrection in Acts chapter 1-6, right before his ascension, you see the scene in Acts chapter 1, his disciples, the first question they ask is, now that you're resurrected, is it now? that you're setting up the kingdom. I mean, they just couldn't let go of that. It was, it was everything to them. That's what they really were expecting, what they wanted. And 
that's what they were asking him constantly. And if you look at your text, the previous conversation uh, in Luke 18, verse 32 and th through 34. Now, this is part of what uh, theologians call the travel log section, which is that last year of Jesus' life, the last year of his ministry, when he had traveled up to the farthest northern part of Caesarea and Philippi, and then from that point on, that's where he first told them that he had to be crucified and then resurrected. And that's where Peter said, no, we won't allow it. And, of course, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. It's got to happen. And from that point on, Jesus continued to teach that. That was the focus of his teaching for that whole year, you know, until after the resurrection and he revealed himself to them. And so he continues to do that. Even here at the end of that one-year period, and he's just about to go. He's probably two weeks away from going into Jerusalem for the Passion Week. And so in verse 32, it says he's teaching his disciples, and he says he, the, the Messiah, talking about himself, will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon, and after they had scourged him, whipped him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. So he's still teaching that very clearly. But look at their response in verse 34. They understood none of these things. <laughs> How can you not understand that? I'll tell you why. Because of presuppositions. They had the presupposition that it was going to be this way. And you know how powerful presuppositions are. When you've got it in your mind that something is a certain way, you're pretty stubborn about it if, if you're like me. You know, it's hard to shake people out of those real strong traditions and presuppositions that they have. We like to say, oh, I've got an open mind. Nonsense, you don't have an open mind. You've got presuppositions that own you, you know. And so they were just, you know, hardcore. The kingdom is going to be set up by the Messiah now. Okay, they did not comprehend. And then in chapter 19, he's going to, you see the, the, the story of verse 1 to 10 about this uh, known sinner, a terrible tax collector named Zacchaeus. And Jesus approaches him, calls him down, and Zacchaeus is converted. And Jesus gives his purpose statement in verse 10. Because they're all looking around going, what the heck? This guy? You, you made this guy part of our group? We got to hang out with this guy, this creep, Zacchaeus? And so here's what Jesus said, and this is Jesus' purpose statement. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He's not looking for self-righteous people who are super religious and supposedly don't need Him. He's looking for the lost people who recognize their sin, humble themselves, and come to Him. So that's His purpose statement. They're looking for Him to set up the kingdom, but His purpose statement is verse 10. That's why He came the first time. Now, of course, in the second coming later when he comes back, it will be as the conquering king to set up the kingdom. But the first thing he had to do was what? He had to atone for man's sin. 
before that could happen. I mean, think about it. He's going to set up the kingdom first. What good would it do to have a kingdom of sinners? <laughs> it wouldn't work. He's got to atone for their sin. He's got to raise them up and give them the righteousness of God through his atoning, atoning work on the cross. Right? Only in that relationship with him can they experience that and then be ready for the kingdom. And not only that, there's a whole multitude who are going to be the recipients of that that would come during the next 2,000 years plus, however much longer it takes for him to come back. And so they still, you know, they don't get it. And they think that he came to set up the kingdom, but he didn't. And so what's, what he's going to do here in chapter 19, Luke 19, verse 11, is he's going to tell this parable. So the, the, what provoked the parable, the question that did, all these parables, you know, are provoked by something, is the incorrect messianic expectations that he would set up the, the kingdom immediately. And again, in verse 11, look what it says in verse 11. And while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. And here's why. Because he was near Jerusalem. He was near the Jerusalem and, and near the crucifixion. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. They were still thinking that. That was their presupposition that they were holding on to. And so he told a parable about a story that they, were, they would understand. It was even a story that had historical significance. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But here they are with this presupposition. And so he's going to tell a parable about something that they understand to help them understand a spiritual truth that they do not understand. They do not understand the atonement. They don't understand the crucifixion. They don't understand why there's got to be a gap in time and a delay, you might say. Theologians, we call it the inner advent age, that period of the first advent and the second advent. You know, they weren't looking for that. They didn't understand it. And, uh, you know, we call it the church age. We're looking for Christ to come back in the future. But nobody knew that. Nobody understood that there was going to be that kind of delay. I mean, even now, 2,000 years has gone by. And, of course, most people are going, really? Do you still think he's coming back? Where is he? It's been 2,000 years, you know. And we're still waiting for him. So it, it, it's natural for people to, to doubt and to, and to wonder what's going on. And so Jesus told this parable to explain the delay. To explain what was was happening and why uh, he didn't come to do this initially, but would do it later. And so he told this story about a king who went away to get a kingdom. But while he was gone, he left a stewardship to his disciples, to his followers, to his subjects. And said, take care of all my stuff while I'm gone. And he was gone for an extended period of time. But when I return, I'll reward you. And of course, if they aren't good stewards, they'll also be punished. And so that's the parable. But Jesus' story that he's going to tell them, he's going to tell them you know, something that the great historian Josephus 
tells us actually happened in 4 BC, 4 BC, which would be about the time that Jesus was born. So why was the kingdom delayed? Uh, and you'll see in this parable, you know, the lessons to be learned in this parable are the kingdom will be delayed. There will be a rejection by Israel of that king. Uh, Jesus' stewardship would be given to his followers while he is gone, so he would give them responsibility. And then later he would return to be king. And then there would be a day of judgment. All of that's pretty clear here in this parable. As we go through it, I think you'll see it. Now this parable, uh, you, you may think it's pretty similar to the parable of the talents. They're often mentioned at the same time parable of the minus and the parable of the talents and a lot of people will say well they're the same parable they are not they're told to different audiences at different times there's slightly different uh, details now the overall meaning is pretty much the same except the the parable of talents one of the things that really differentiates it is the the talents that the master gave represent something that is given unequally in other words one servant got ten talents, another one got five, and one got three, one, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's pretty much agreed that that, that represents uh, the spiritual gifts and talents that we have, the natural talents we have. You know, some people can sing, some can't. Some people, can, you know, are artists and some are not, you know, on and on and on. We all have different talents. Some people have a lot more talents than others, Right? And, and God has also given everyone in the church spiritual gifts, and they're all different. And some people have more uh, spiritual gifts than others, but everyone is expected to use their spiritual gifts. So that's the parable of the talents. The parable of the minas is different in that everybody gets the same thing. In the story, everybody got one mina. It's the same thing. And so you think, okay, what is it that Jesus gives us all the same amount of. And you could probably add to this or, or help me here. I was trying to think of that. And of course, the most obvious thing in my mind is what we have all gotten the same amount of is the gospel. We all have the gospel. You know, this awesome good news about Jesus Christ. We all have the gospel. Also, we all have the same Holy Spirit. Nobody has more of the Holy Spirit. We all have the same Holy Spirit. And, of course, we all have the same love of God, right? So there are some things that, that you know, you could say we all have the same amount of. Some guy wrote, just imagine this. Joe Christian gets the same amount as Billy Graham or John Calvin or John Wesley or Simon Peter. <laughs> you, uh, Joe Christian would be you, by the way and me we all got the same amount as even these great christian leaders they've got different gifts and talents but we all have the same amount of the gospel and the spirit and god's love and there's probably some other things you can think of as well and so it's really a great uh, parable about that uh, that which god has given everybody a lot because see a lot of people when you talk about spiritual gifts and talents they go well, that's not my thing. That's not my bailiwick. I, I don't have that gift. And, of course, that's, that's probably true. But there are some things that, that Jesus has entrusted equally 
to all of us and that we will be held responsible to use, right? So you know the gospel, so you're responsible to share it with your friends and family, the people you have access to, relationships with, right? Uh, and so that's what the minus is about. So nobody, some people can look at the parable of the talents and say, well, I'm exempt from that because I, you know, whatever reason, I don't have that gift or talent. But everybody's got a mina. Everybody here has a mina as represented in the parable, okay? So Jesus is going to give them what I would call an attention grabber story. He's going to grab their attention by using this parable about a historical story that they're all very, very familiar with. In fact, it was a big scandal at the turn of the century, and I'm sure they're parents and they all heard people talking about it all the time. And we have that, uh, we have that story as well from the historian Josephus. You know, that guy that he was a Jewish historian from the first century, uh, wrote volumes of material. Most of the history that people know about that time comes uh, regarding the Middle East, also the Roman Empire, comes from Josephus. He's the best source of history from the first century that we have. And Josephus wrote that after Herod the Great died in 4 B.C., his will named his son Archelaus as king over Judea. Judea is that whole area that surrounds Jerusalem. So Herod the Great had been king of that and left it to his son. But remember, they're underneath Roman authority. So to actually get the, the kingdom that his father willed him, he's got to go away to Rome to receive it, to be approved. Okay? True story. So Archelaus went away to Rome to receive his title from Caesar. And of course, naturally, since he assumes he's going to be approved, he expects all the people in Jerusalem, all the Jews, to be on his side. Right? Just out of fear, if nothing else. But to his amazement, uh, part of his own family also traveled to Rome, and 50 Jewish leaders from the Jerusalem area went as well to oppose him. And so they went to say, no, don't let this guy be king. We don't like this guy. We will not have this guy reign over us. That sound familiar? That's what they said about Jesus. And so in a public setting... In Rome, at the Temple of Apollo, they all appeared before Caesar and gave their case. Very well-publicized confrontation. But Caesar still gave the kingdom to Archelaus. That was Herod's son, Archelaus. So he did receive the kingdom. But he was gone, you know, a couple of years to, in order to get it. Uh, and so he comes back, and when he returned to Jerusalem, he rewarded his supporters and punished his enemies, all right? And so everybody knew that story. Everyone had been affected by that story in Jesus' audience. So when he told that story, they naturally go, wait a minute, that actually happened. I know what he's talking about. But he was really also, it had a double meaning, he was talking about himself, the delay in the kingdom. The king, Jesus, would have to go away for an extended period of time in order to be approved as king, sent back as king to receive his kingdom. 
And nobody knows how long that will take. In the meantime, Jesus expects his disciples, his followers, to represent him on earth. Just like when Archelaus left, he told his guys to take care of Judea while he was gone. So in the parable, you see verse 12. He said, Jesus said, therefore, a certain nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself. And of course, the first time I read that, I was probably like you. Why would you go to another king, king, distant land to receive a kingdom? I don't get it. But that's what Archelaus had to do. He had to go to Rome to receive the kingdom of Judea. So, so they go, oh, yeah, we know about that. And then he was going to go away and then eventually return to rule over that kingdom. And so what he did is to take care of his kingdom while he was gone, he called ten of his slaves, his servants, and he gave them each a mina, gave ten minas to ten guys. And he said to each of them, do business with this until I come back. So that's the stewardship. I'm going to give you this amount of money of mine, and I want you to do business for me on my account while I'm gone, and then we'll have an accounting of it when I get back. And so he called them together and said, do this until I come back. And here, in verse 14, here's the problem. But his citizens... <laughs> The citizens of that kingdom hated him, rejected him, and they sent a delegation after him to wherever it was he was going. In Archelaus's life, it was Rome. And when they got there, here's what they said. We do not want this man to reign over us. Does that, again, that sound familiar? That's what they said to Jesus. And it came about that when he returned... After receiving the kingdom, doesn't tell how long that is, but there was this gap of time, this delay between him leaving and coming back. But he, he did come back. And what did he do? He ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him in order that he might know what business they had done. And so they, they come, and it, we're, we're going to be told about three different guys. In verse 16, the first guy, the first uh, servant says, Master, your mina, notice that. He doesn't consider it my mina. He considers it your mina, the master, Jesus, the king's mina. Your mina has made ten minas more. So a very humble presentation of what he had done. Basically, what you gave me accomplished this. Very much like we think of the gospel, right? Um, we share the gospel, but it's not us that do a sale job on people and talk them into anything. The gospel itself is convincing. It accomplishes uh, God's purpose of bringing someone to Christ. Not me. I'm just like a conduit and an agent, you know, that presents it. And then the, the gospel does the work. And God gets all the credit. That's very much like these servants are going to say. Uh, your mina, it made. Ten minus more. And he said to him, 
uh, well done. You know, this is something we all hope to hear one day, right? When you stand before God, this is what you want to hear. This is what it's all about. Well done, good and faithful servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing. This little thing you did me, I'm going to do something huge, awesome for you. You did a little, you're going to get an abundance. So he says, be in authority over ten cities. Now this is interesting. He's going to say the same thing to the next guy. The next guy is going to say, your minor master has made five minors. And he said to him, you are also to be over five cities. Okay. Well, this is amazing because all the time I'm growing up, I'm thinking that, you know, heaven is like little angels flying around in the clouds playing harps. And, you know, you hear all the jokes about your rewards in heaven, right? You remember the, my favorite joke is uh, the joke about the, uh, the preacher and the cab, New York cab driver. The New York cab driver and the preacher get to heaven at the same time. And they go, come on in. This is where you live and this is where you live. And the preacher was taken to a shack. And the New York cab driver was taken to a mansion. So the preacher went to, so what's the deal? How did this happen? And St. Peter said, well, when he preached, when you preached, people slept. But when he drove, people prayed. You know, so, but that's what we think. That's the way we think heaven is, you know. We're going to get something. We're going to get a mansion. We're going to get a golf course. You know, if you were really good, you get to play Augusta, whereas somebody else has to play Bobo Links or something, you know, <laughs> Tennyson or wherever, right? I mean, that's, that's the, what we make of it. Why do we do that? Because we're selfish. We think we're going to get a bunch of selfish stuff for ourselves. Heaven is not like that at all. All the glimpses we get of heaven is that God owns everything and everybody works for him. There's no more competition for stuff. We're not in there slugging it out fighting for stuff like we are now. I've got to get my stuff. And I keep you from getting my stuff. Right? You don't have that in heaven. God owns everything, and we all work for him. And now you might think of work as tedious and, and worrisome and hard, you know, especially if you have a bad day or something. But what you've got, the picture in heaven of responsibility, of stewardships that God gives you, I'll give you ten cities or five cities, is something that's exciting, it's dynamic, and it's fulfilling. So it's the most wonderful thing that he could do for you and I. Because that's what we were made to do. is to serve him and glorify him. So we get our best opportunity to do that with these rewards. Okay? So the one uh, that serves God faithfully now will get an abundance later. Get fulfillment and excitement, responsibility, something wonderful. Okay, and so that, that's what he's saying here in the parable. And then verse 20, here's a different kind of guy. This is interesting. Another came, another servant came. And here's what he said. Uh, Master, uh, behold, your mina. And so he pulled out the original mina and gave it back. And I, I kept that hidden in a handkerchief somewhere, you know, safe. 
and because I was afraid of you. You know, you're an exacting man or you're, you know, kind of a, a ruthless man. And you take what's not yours. And you reap what you do not sow. Somebody plants it, you come take it. Well, that's an interesting perspective, isn't it? Wow, what's up with this guy? And so the, the master refutes this argument by saying, by your own words, I will judge you. That's your excuse? That's your bogus excuse? By your own words, I will judge you. Worthless slave, <laughs> worthless servant. Did you know that I am, is that, is that the truth? I'm an exacting man. I'm a ruthless man, taking up what I didn't lay down, what I did not sow. Then why did you not at least put the money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. We all know this guy, right? Who is this guy? This is the guy who does everything for himself. It's all about me. I don't have time to mess with anything else. Will you serve on this committee? Will you do this? Will you come? No, I don't have time. I'm busy with this, that, and the other, you know, because it's all about me. So this guy really didn't take it to heart, the stewardship to heart at all. All he was thinking about is whatever his business was, whatever he had to do, what his interests are. There's not anybody in the world today like that, is there? Yeah, I think it's the majority, right? That's the usual person out there, all those people. Of course, no one here, nobody in this group. Now, the amazing thing about this, and, and uh, you know, it's, you, you can debate this, but a lot of people, a lot of uh, theologians, a lot of Christians think that this guy represents, because he is a servant, and what happens to the citizens who rejected uh, the king is different, much worse than this guy. A lot of people think this is, you probably heard the term carnal Christian. You ever heard that term? This guy's a carnal Christian. In other words, he's a Christian, he's saved, but he gets no rewards. He gets nothing. So Paul actually tells a story that's similar to this in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, uh, you will be judged, all Christians will be judged. We normally think that Christians won't be judged, that only you know, non-Christians, because all of our sins were paid for by Christ, and that is exactly right. But Paul says Christians will be, will be judged about the life that they lived after salvation. So what did you do? You were saved. What did you do for Christ after that? So he likens Christ as our foundation, and then he says, what did you build on that foundation? And he uses the metaphor of wood, hay, and stubble, to represent the stuff you did for yourself that's not eternal, it's temporal, versus gold, silver, and precious gems, which represents stuff you did for God. And he says the fiery judgment will reveal which is which. So the fire will burn up all that wood, hay, and stubble. And it says this guy, if, you, if, if all your stuff is wood, hay, and stubble, it'll be burned up, and you will suffer loss, but you'll still be saved. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. And so that's, the, that's where the concept of carnal Christian comes. And so this guy seems to be a different kind of guy like that. And so a lot of people that, you, you know, that say they're Christians that you look at and you go, well, there's no evidence. You know, it's possible that this could be that guy. Okay? Now, a lot of people think that. 
And, you know, doesn't, it doesn't matter to me if you think that or not, but I'm just laying that out for you. And so he says to the bystanders about this guy. So the other servants are standing around, and he, uh, the king, Jesus, tells the, the other servants, look what he says, take the mina away from him. So that one mina that he was given, take it away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas, right? Which is kind of shocking. What is he saying, though? He's going to give you a proverbial saying to explain that because naturally all the people are going to go, what? Golly, that guy already has ten. You're going to take away his one? And, and so they ask that in verse 25. So in verse 26, the king says, Jesus says, I tell you that to everyone who has shall more be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Sounds like a riddle. But what's he saying based on the context and, and what happened? He's saying, since this man has no good works for God, everything he thinks he has, all that stuff he's been working for, will be taken away. But the one who's, whosoever God faithfully, who served God faithfully, will get an abundance. So that, that's what he means there, right? The last category of people in the parable. So what have you got? You got the servants divided into two categories, the faithful servants and the unfaithful servant. And then in verse 27, you've got the citizens of the country, the, the, the other subjects of the king. You know, just because they rejected him and didn't believe in him and refused to let him reign over them, they're still subjects of his. Even though they said that, they still live there and he still rules over them in spite of what they say or want. So here's what happens to them, verse 27. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Wow, that's rough, but it's clear, isn't it? That's what I like about it. It's clear. There's no gray area here. There's no waffle room. You know, people want to waffle. There's no waffle room here. It's this or that. And it's clear. And so in, in summary of this uh, parable, let's kind of go back over it. The nobleman in the parable symbolized Jesus Christ. The far country that he went to, off to symbolized heaven where Jesus is now. Jesus went off in the ascension to heaven to be with the Father. And prophetically in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, you got this prophetic vision of the Son coming before the throne. He's called the Son of Man and given the kingship to return to earth. And he comes back. And that's, that's what the, the far country is, is heaven, uh, where Jesus is now. The servants in the parable, uh, they symbolize or represent Christians, believers. And the citizens who hated him symbolize unbelievers. Even though they don't believe, they reject him, they're still subjects of his. He's still going to reign, rule over them. The mina that was given symbolized the equal opportunity of spiritual life for all Christians. We've all got the same. And the nobleman's return with the kingdom symbolizes the second coming of Christ. He's coming back to set up his kingdom. 
And, of course, that accounting represents that judgment uh, that, that will occur. A judgment of condemnation to all those who've rejected him and their sins have not been atoned for. And a judgment, as we talked about, of their stewardship for those who do receive him. Now, the question you might ask is, you know, because what provoked this, <coughs> the delay, that, that time gap of we call the inter-advent age. And if you're like me, you're probably saying, why is it so long? It's been 2,000 years. What's taking so long, right? Well, here's the deal. Peter says it well in 2 Peter 3, verse 8 through 10. Peter says that time is not important to the Lord. Even though we are amazed that 2,000 years have gone by, he, he doesn't care. What he is doing, the reason for the delay, he is patiently waiting for all who will come, for everyone who will be saved to come. And he's giving whatever time that takes to happen, happen. I mean, think about your kids, your grandkids, or, or whoever, you know, people in foreign lands that are believing in Jesus every day, right now. They're getting that opportunity because Christ has not come back yet. Once he comes back, that'll be the end of it. He sets up his kingdom. So praise God for the delay, right? That's just his mercy and compassion and patience. So our life should be all about taking the opportunities that God's given us during that time period to serve him well, to make him look good. One more thing as we close, I want you to want to point out to you. Did you notice there were ten servants in the parable? But we only heard from three of them. What about the other seven guys? What about those guys? Well, here's my take on it, and I like this. <laughs> we, we are the other seven servants. And it remains to be seen what our rewards will be. It remains to be seen what the master, what the king will say to us. Right? And, of course, what we're really hoping for at the end of the day is we'll come before him just like these guys, and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. You got it. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with these great stories that Jesus told. They're so powerful. They're so convicting. They reveal so much. And Lord, I pray that you'd take, let us help us take it to heart and respond accordingly to, to go out and serve you well. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.